0: I want to take you into the book of Ephesians and the fourth chapter. I'm going to read to you the first 16 verses of that chapter. It is, of course, a letter of the Apostle Paul written to the church in Ephesus in what is today Turkey. Beautiful, beautiful letter, stunning and striking insights into the work of Christ on our behalf and what it means to be the church. Let's read then from the first verse of Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, last week, if you were here, you'll know that we um, thought a little bit about the theme of resolutions. And I took you to a little prayer that Paul uttered or described on behalf of the Thessalonian church when he said that he was praying that God would fulfill every good resolve of theirs. And we were thinking about how as Christians, individuals, call to submission and discipleship to Jesus, how important it is that we maintain resolve, that we know what we're to commit to, what we're to choose for as we think about serving Him. The danger, of course, is that we engage in a kind of passivity in the Christian life where you drift along. There's a kind of cruise mode where you are um, likely just to to kind of drift into with the currents. And when a person is in that state of mind and spirit, their spiritual life is withering and dying. And rather, the New Testament says that as God is working in you, his purpose is we're to work with that by choosing his will, constantly wanting to obey him, ultimately for his glory. With the knowledge, of course, that as a Christian, God has a mission for you. To be a Christian is to have purpose, almost by definition, because you're called to be a disciple. You're called to follow in the master's steps, and the master is about a great work in the world, and you're with him in that work. And so we're thinking about what it means to choose his will, what it means to resolve as Christians. Now, I wanted to take a step back and consider with you a little bit more about Christ's purposes in us together as God's people not so much focusing on the individual, rather the church. And I'd read this passage a couple of weeks ago and felt immediately like I needed to preach on this in the new year as something that would speak to us and encourage us. And really what it does is it answers the question, what is Christ's vision for his church? Now, I think this is a vital and important question to ask because of the realities of what we're up against and we can think first of all about the present crisis that we're in and it is a crisis and it's a crisis for many institutions organizations realities in the world but it is also for the church in the sense that the church by definition is an assembly a gathering a community of people who are together embodied and it brings about something of an existential crisis if we can't be together what are we if we are not Meeting and loving each other in a family, in a community. And I think for a church such as ours, given who we are, the kinds of people, you know, central London dwellers, and the fact that you generally choose to live in the city, and you choose to find a church to go to, a crisis like this can really rock a church like ours. By God's grace, I think we've, we've fared fairly well, considering... But the crisis really does bring about a fraying at the edges and has led to, you know, the the sadness of seeing lots of people leave as they left the city and so on. There's this crisis. But then, of course, alongside that, behind that, almost more important than the present moment we're in, because this moment will pass, more important than that are the chronic issues that have been afflicting and affecting uh, churches and the church, as it were, in the Western world and in this nation in particular, for a long time now. There was a time, of course, when churches were full everywhere. But this has been something of a chronic, ongoing catastrophe that has taken place within um, the bride of Christ in this nation, at least. And it's felt like a tide, a change of tide, hasn't it? If you ever, I walk a number of times a week, I'll walk along the River Thames and um, depending on what time of day you catch it and what the the moon's up to and what the tides are up to, sometimes it can be full almost to overflowing, an enormous, like mind-boggling body of water. It's so much, uh, so many millions of gallons of water and in the spring tide, it almost reaches over the wall and then you can go a few hours later and the, the thing almost looks empty. And I can feel when we consider the state of Christianity that the tide has gone out. If we go to one of the beaches in Norfolk, the flat beaches, the, toe, the sea can be right at your toes one minute. And if you don't pay attention, you look up a few minutes later, it can be hundreds of meters away and it goes out and out on these sand flats as the tide recedes. And in some ways it's felt like that. You consider what's going on with the state of the church in this nation, empty buildings everywhere and... The withering and the fragility of, 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 the seeming fragility. And with that, you know, there's, the, there's a numerical drop. There's the worldview changes that have taken place in society at large where once you could have taken for granted the fundamental beliefs that there's a God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is His Son. That there's a judgment awaiting us. And all those things now are largely disregarded and not believed. And of course, with that comes the moral changes. The atmosphere has changed. Even to the degree where Christianity is regarded as obscure and even dangerous in the eyes of many, so much has changed. And it seems to me that because of this, because of what's been going on, the wearying and, and, and wearing effects, the erosion that's been taking place for many decades now, as well as this present crisis, which I am sure will be the death knell of, I, I suspect it'll be the year that most, that, that we'll see the most churches die in this nation. I think when you put those two things together, it raises the question of what Christ is doing. What his purposes are. Where his power is. What his vision is for his people, for his church. And it's with that that I want us to think about what Paul has to say here. Now the first thing I would want to answer that question with, what is Christ's vision vision for his church? Will be to assert and underline the mere fact, the certainty that he absolutely has a future and a vision and a purpose that he is accomplishing for his people and in his people. And that it's articulated here by what Paul uses this phrase, that that he is ascended, that he might fill all things. It speaks of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ filling the earth, of the expansion of his rule and reign. This is what Paul was confident of and which we take for granted as Christians. Of course, from our vantage point, this sounds like an utterly ludicrous claim given that from where we are sitting at least, it looks like the kingdom of Jesus expressed in the church is on the retreat, receding, withering, at least where we live. You compare it with 500 years ago. Everybody identified as a follower of Jesus. Whether they knew him in their heart or not, they, everyone at least would have made that profession of faith. Even 100 years ago, when we were in a crisis with the First World War just over 100 years ago, it was not uncommon for the whole nation to come together in prayer on a day of prayer. Same thing happened during the Second World War. How much has changed that that has not been the instinct or the reaction, the reflex in this particular crisis that we're in, when we most need to be before God in prayer as, a, as the church and the nation has largely considered the church to be in irrelevance? So that it doesn't matter if the church's doors are shut. What good is the church in this particular crisis? And so, with that comes doubt. With that comes a skepticism. Now, I believe that that doubt concerning the future of Christ's body is misguided, narrow, largely blind to what God is doing in the world as a whole. This is what Paul says so confidently when he predicts and prophesies, he says in verse 10, that he who descended, speaking of Christ's journey to earth, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is what you would call an eschatological hope, an end time hope, a hope for the future, a certain hope. And it's so important that you read this within the context of what Paul had seen within his own life, which was very little. The Christian faith at that time was just a minor blip on the radar and the consciousness of the empire in which Paul lived, the Roman Empire, a seeming irrelevance, in other words, and yet here he's talking about its ultimate triumph under the rule of King Jesus. So if people would laugh at us now for having that kind of confidence, how much more could they have laughed at Paul when he actually wrote this? And yet he, ha- he says it with total certainty. Why? partly because he himself had seen with his own eyes the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. He'd been a hater of of Jesus, a hater of Christ's followers, of the Christians, a persecutor, one who wanted to kill them and put them to death and hound them into, into exile in the nation of Israel. And what had happened? He'd seen the Lord Jesus Christ in his ascended glory and forever he was changed it gave him this utter certainty and conviction not only regarding the nature of Jesus that he is the son of god so that he could submit his life to jesus but also regarding the purposes and plans and the power of the lord jesus what he was doing in and through his people on the on planet earth and then he went back and reread his old testament the Hebrew Bible that he'd grown up studying and knew intimately, inside out. And he suddenly saw how all lines converged on the person of Jesus and how all the plans and purposes that God had to expand his kingdom would be fulfilled in and through the rule of King Jesus on on the earth. Now, the Old Testament is full of these kinds of prophecies, but I only want to draw your attention to a couple of them. In Isaiah 2, for example, Isaiah says this, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, it's using metaphorical language here to speak of God's kingdom as like a mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It's going to be Everest. and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So fascinating to read this. Written as it was seven centuries before the coming of Jesus, when belief in the God of the Bible was exclusive to a small group of Semitic people who lived in the Middle East and by no means a global faith. And yet here they're describing the global reach Of belief in this God, and of course Paul saw how all it all came to fulfilment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way that the gospel went out into all the earth, so that all the nations, as it says here in Isaiah two, many peoples will come, will flow, and isn't that the very thing that we see today? Similarly, another passage which illustrates this is in the Daniel chapter two. Remember, Daniel was in exile in Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this dictator had these encounters with God when God spoke to him by a spirit and on one particular occasion he has a vision in the vision he sees a great statue made of various materials of gold and then of silver in layers and then a layer of bronze and then ultimate, uh, finally a layer of clay mixed with iron the feet Then he sees a stone that comes and knocks the feet and the whole thing shatters into pieces and he has no idea what it means and it it racks him with anxiety and concern and he asks all the the seers, the kind of prophets, of the Babylonians, the magicians to interpret it to him. None of them know what it means and then Daniel comes to the fore. God speaks to Daniel. Daniel says, this is what it means. There will be four successive empires and they will all crumble before this stone. Of course, this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar's ruler of Babylon. What followed was then the rule of Persia. What followed that was the rule of Greece. What followed that was the rule of Rome. And then what happens? The stone arrives. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taps Rome on the foot. And the whole thing begins to crumble and reassemble under the rule of King Jesus. It's what Jesus talks about when he says that the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds in the garden. Which when planted grows to be the biggest tree. And all the birds find nest in its Branches. Now, I could go on and on. The Bible's full of this unbelievable optimism about the purposes of God in the world. And I want to remind you of this, friends. We see the fraying, the fragility, it would seem, our weakness before all the things that would oppose what God is doing in and through us, and yet we have total certainty and confidence. We don't need to be anxious The Lord Jesus Christ has his purpose to fill all things. I think then therefore what Paul says here when he describes the ascent of the Lord Jesus far above all the heavens that he might fill all things that really this is truly prophetic. The pessimist would look only at this present moment and see the church on the retreat in our particular context. But really that's the wrong perspective. It's a little bit like an alien coming down to land on planet earth, to discover what this earth is about and whether it's fruitful and landing in the Sahara Desert and seeing no life for miles and concluding this is a barren and infertile planet. No, no, no. Just step back a little bit. Have a look at the bigger picture. And this is certainly what fuels and fires my heart. I might see a momentary blip here where we live in terms of the ups and downs that the church has been through in recent years, but it doesn't concern me because I see King Jesus making his, his advance. Globally. And I see the trajectory from when Paul wrote these very words to now over the last 2,000 years. And I see nothing but the unremitting and, and, and total um, advance of the gospel. And how it is conquering hearts everywhere. And the Lord Jesus bringing about the fame of his own name. Friend, I want to remind you of this. Christ is certainly working out his purposes for his people to fill all things. This brings me to another point which is really evident, and really slaps us around the face when we read this passage, to be honest. Which is that when we think about Christ's vision for his church, we cannot miss the fact that the means by which he is accomplishing this vision is through his people, through you. You ask me, what is Christ's vision for his church? And it is To turn you into his hands and feet. To make you useful. To equip you. That you would do the work that he's called you to do. Now I find this very strange because I look at my own life and see all my flaws and the fragile nature of my spirituality and of of my character and all the ways in which I should be disqualified from being useful to the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you just get on with it. You don't need me. And yet it seems that, that Christ was determined even in his earthly ministry, to spend as little time here as possible doing the work himself and as much t- time investing in those who would do it for him. And then he went to heaven. And he said, I'm going to give you the spirit and, the, and you're going to get on with this. What a stunning thought. How it grips us with an awareness of our, of our responsibility, of our mandate, of our calling, of what it means to be the church of God here and at this time. And it comes through in this passage in Ephesians 4 in a couple of distinct ways. The first is how Paul talks about the great leadership gifts that God raises up in his church. He says in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When he speaks there the language of grace, he's talking about gifts. And then he explains a little bit more in verse 11. He says that he gave the apostles, the prophets... The evangelists, the shepherds, or pastors, and teachers. And what's being described here, of course, is what has often been called the fivefold ministry, though some people count it as four, because the last two, pastor and teacher, can be combined into one, depending on how you read it. Either way, it doesn't matter too much to me. The point is that Christ has called and set apart certain individuals for this kind of extra devotion, I suppose, or commitment to the work of God in terms of their own specific calling. A couple of comments I want to say about this before I look at the bigger picture. This is not something you choose for yourself. This is not something you volunteer for. I think if you ask me why the state of the church is as it is in the West, one of the reasons is that too many of the pastoral positions and pulpits are being filled by people who chose themselves for this calling. And It's evidenced by the fruitlessness of ministry. People choose it because they think, I don't know what else to do with my life. Or you're an indoorsy type of person, likes to be in books. Or you you maybe have an overestimation of certain gifts which you don't possess. Or a desire for recognition, what small recognition you can get within the church. There are all kinds of reasons why people choose this. That I would say emphatically, this is not something, a calling that people choose for themselves. Those who do, as I said, it's evidenced by their life. But those who are called by God, you see the marks, the hand of God upon them. And what's clear from what Paul says here is this is a sovereign work of the Lord Jesus Christ to set apart certain individuals for this type of work. It says it in the way that he speaks of Christ giving. It says in verse 10 that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is the vision Paul's painting of a king who is conquering. And as he's conquering, he's pulling men into his mission. He's giving them gifts and equipping them for service. And then he reiterates that in verse 11 when it says those first words. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. This is not something that people choose for themselves or necessarily volunteer for. So where Christ comes and puts his hand on a person, on a man. And says you're mine. You're going to serve me in this. Even if it is a sovereign work of the Lord Jesus Christ to set aside certain individuals we still have to obey. One of my deepest passions I think part of the reason why I'm sharing this with you friends and why I was drawn to this. One of my deepest longings and passions for our church is that we will become something of a dynamo in terms of Pulling people in who are called, turning them out, sending them out. I, I long to see those who feel called to this work, equipped, prepared, convicted, with a vision for what it means to lay your life down for the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God speaks to you, let me charge you, you need to obey. What good is it if the Lord invites you to be his disciple or invites you to a specific ministry and you say, well, let me just go home and do this, that, and the other like some people did in Christ's earthly ministry. He said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I think this applies to discipleship, becoming a Christian. also applies to the mission that Christ might lay upon your life. If you're going to put your hand to the plow and say, Lord, my life belongs to you, don't look back. The person looks back can only ever follow a wonky line through the field. Be ineffective. When the Lord speaks to you, you respond. You say, Lord, your servant is listening, like Samuel said. You feel the quickening in your spirit. You feel the spirit moving upon you, and you know that God is setting you apart for his work. He's going to put fire in your bones, like he said to Jeremiah. So woe is me if I I hold this word inside. It's like a fire in my bones. He had to speak. Or else it would consume him from the inside out. I feel this burden in my own life. But how much greater if dozens of people are mobilized in this way out of our church to go and expand the reach of the kingdom of God in this earth. That's only one facet of what Paul talks about here, though. He also talks about the calling and the ministry and the task which the Lord Jesus Christ puts upon every member of the body. Because just after he's mentioned these five gifts in verse 11, he says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors or shepherds and teachers. What does he then say? He says, to equip or train the saints, which is... New Testament language for all Christians. Not special Christians, not a designated group of Christians, but every single one of you who bears the name of the Lord Jesus to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain this unity. The vision Paul has then of the church is something radically different from what the church has so often tragically become which is a passive body. Now this is a huge challenge. You look at how he describes the activity then of a church that's full of this kind of life where it sparks one between, you know, each person between each other, where there's kind of this constant friction and interaction and life that flows between us so that it's not just about me or the elders as pastors leading a church, but rather about everything that you all are doing. And Paul describes it in verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we, speaking of everyone, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, he means the whole church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow to build itself up in love. There are no appendages in the body of Christ. No redundant, disposable parts. To be a Christian is to have function and purpose and gift and call and responsibility within the church. And this is a huge challenge to us for the, because we think of all the limitations to that right now. I think, friends, I want to encourage you, don't look at the fences, look at the field. Don't look at the obstacles to being effective for Christ. Look at the opportunities. The Lord Jesus has given you a field to work. It may just be the one or two other people you know who you can bless and encourage and pray for. It may be more than that, but do it. Whatever it is he's called you to do, do it. I will say this, that even in perfect conditions, this is challenging. Let's say that by some miracle, the virus just vanished overnight and all the restrictions disappeared with it and church life returned to normal. Would we then see every member functioning when each part working properly in the way that Paul describes? And I say probably not, for a number of reasons. One is spiritual apathy. It's the killer of effectiveness in the church of God. Another is stunted spiritual growth, where some people just remain like infants in the church, never learning, never developing, never maturing, never growing in holiness and purity and conviction. Another is guilt and condemnation where people go around feeling a heaviness of heart because of things that they have done in the past that causes them to stay quiet and dismiss themselves from anything useful within the body. It's a great tragedy because we know that the blood of Christ was shed to forgive us for our past, present and future sin. And you have no right to disqualify yourself. Some people, just because they don't understand that this is our calling, You've grown up in church where it's all just been about spectating. Going there, returning home, just a little bit of your week. A segment, a passive activity. So the challenge is clear. You ask me, what is Christ's vision for his church? Yes, he wants to fill all things. But his vision is not to bypass you. But rather to use you to accomplish his purpose. Some of you, to set aside for these specific roles that Paul's articulated here. Those who are set apart to be the servants of the church. With distinguished leadership gifts. Called sovereignly and given for that purpose. And then all of us, to be functioning as ministers to the body. And The challenge is, what are you doing? Are you saying yes to Jesus? Do you want to be used of him and by him? in the church and in the world this brings me to another point then where is this all heading so far all i've done really is i've asserted that christ has this great grand purpose that he wants to use us but where's the destination one of the answers that comes through again with so much clarity and obviousness when you see it here is that ultimately this is about christ bringing about unity among his people a oneness, a community, a reconciliation, a love that exists in the church in a unique way that is not replicated anywhere else in any other organization on the planet. The church is a miracle. And this is what Paul talks about here. Look at verse 13. <clears> he <throat> says that, uh, he's just said that we were to be equipped for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And he says, until we all attain To the unity of the faith. This is the destination that he's describing. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is of course how he opened the whole passage. When he's encouraged these godly qualities of humility and gentleness and patience and so on. He says eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is where he brings this theological foundation in. He says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all. Now... What we are talking about here then is something really quite unique. It's also something that has been the cause of an enormous amount of confusion among Christians, particularly in the last century or so, and particularly in the West. What has happened is something like this, that we've looked around us and we've seen the tragedy of the fragmented nature of the church, how you can go down any of the high streets, in London, and Greater London, and you might see an Anglican church, and then a Baptist church, and then a Pentecostal church, and a Methodist church, and any number of other denominations. And so of all the thousands of churches that exist in the city, there are dozens, if not possibly hundreds, of denominations, distinct groupings, and the reasoning is that people engage in here is they say, well, listen, if Christ's purpose was unity among his people, it's the thing he prayed for, of course, when he gave his high priestly prayer to in the, in, towards the end of John's gospel. If Christ is aiming for unity, can we help him along a little bit here? And here's how we'll do it. What is it that's dividing us? Well, it's our doctrines, isn't it? It's our beliefs that divide us. So why don't we just put those to the side and just love each other, you know? We're all Christians in some sense, Now, listen, the tragedy of this is that you end up with something much less than Christianity. It's not possible to put our faith to one side and still have anything meaningful left to talk about. What Paul's describing here is not that. And that project has been attempted again and again. What's called the kind of ecumenical movement in our nation. It's kind of a doctrineless Christianity, a Christianity emptied of all the ideas that divide us and just really just a bland label, pallid and weak, ineffectual. But what Paul is describing here is something quite different. He's talking about a unity that's built on and founded on our radically unique convictions and beliefs. That we of all people on the earth believe in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is a non-compromising conviction about the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the oneness of God and the one way to God through the Son. And if anything, Paul would, I think if you were to jump ahead into our day and age and analyze the present situation of Christianity in our context, he'd say, no, you you represent what is described as the sickness here, the problem here. When he describes the problem of being children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are too many churches which are sick to the core, in other words. And the vision that Paul paints is of a unity that's brought about because of a purity of belief, because Christ is Lord. And we acknowledge the power of of, of his authority over his church to define what is true and what is not true, and that we do not take our guidance from the world. Now, why is this so essential? It's because the unity that I'm describing is only possible because of a nearness to Jesus himself. every other effort to bring about the joining of humans into kind of community and unity is a man-made project like the tower of babel was in the book of genesis and what's that ultimately about ultimately it's about the pride of man man displaying his own glory and dignity they built the tower and said let's build a tower let's join together and build a tower to the heavens and god came in and confused the languages because he didn't want man to become above himself and every time you see these kinds of great projects going on in the world, sometimes at the grand political levels, and we just hear about this treaty between Europe and China, and we know about the European project itself, and sometimes at the grassroots levels, like the, the movement for racial reconciliation that was going on last year. And what you see there, and what's so sad there, is that ultimately it's centered on bad ideas, hollow ideas, ideas that center upon the glory of humans and our pride, and not upon our humility before the Lord Jesus Christ and a submission to Him. The only way, this is what I want you to understand the only way that people can really be bound together in the kind of love that you see in the New Testament, this agape love, this love which is the first to the other, that submits to the other, that puts the other first the only way that we can overcome all of our natural prejudices and ugliness of heart, the only way that we can really experience reconciliation from our natural animosity and hatred and suspicion and prejudices, the only way, the New Testament says, is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our nearness to Him. And So it says in in an earlier chapter in chapter 2, this is a constant theme throughout the whole letter, but let me read to you from chapter 2 verse 12. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He said, you were out in the cold before you knew Jesus. This is the situation in the world without Jesus. Distinct people groups, all kinds of people running around doing their own thing, but ultimately out in the cold. And then he says, but now in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is nothing else, no power in the universe that combined us together more than Christ can. And particularly his own blood. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? Because the blood of Jesus is what humbles us all to the ground. Removes all of our natural barriers and separations and reasons to distinguish ourselves one above another and feel that we're better than others. The blood of Christ knocks you down. Brings you to a a place of humility and brokenness in which you see I'm a sinner like every other person. There can be no pride. There can be no judgment when you acknowledge that's true of yourself. And then what it does, it builds you up. And says you're clean. Your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of you came in the same way. So there's no reason to think one is better than another. Or to hate one another. Too many Christians have been ashamed of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking that this this teaching is primitive. From a darker age. And try to accommodate Christian teaching to the modern age. And make it sound a little bit more like the kind of brotherhood of man tolerance. And all the kind of gooey nonsense that we see in the world right now. And what we need is a return to the brutality of the cross. God's anger against sin and our absolute need for the atoning, cleansing blood of Jesus. And when we see this, we experience unity. I want to say a final word on this before I close. This unity has to be expressed. It's not just a sentiment, it's not just an idea, it's not just a theory. It has to find expression in every local church where we enjoy love, where we actually sacrificially commit to each other. It's one of the reasons why I'm saying that it is no exaggeration to say that Christ died to make this kind of gathering possible and we do not discard this privilege lightly. I think sometimes we've approached this whole scenario, and I'm speaking to you guys, the ones who are here, but sometimes we approach this whole scenario asking through the grid of what is safe rather than through the grid of what is pleasing to God. And I know that we are navigating choppy waters. Not everything is clear-cut. It requires wisdom that's far beyond me. But I do want to remind you, even if we can't meet next week, I want to remind you of the immense privilege it is to be in God's family this is what Christ died for and it's what he's accomplishing in the world God willing I want to show you a little bit more next week the ultimate aim end to which Christ is pulling and drawing us in his vision for his church Paul goes on to describe maturity. It means perfection. It means completion. But for the present, let's dwell on these thoughts. How is Christ calling you? What has he equipped you to do to bring about Christ's purposes in his church? Do not think that just because we are operating under restrictions that we are somehow made redundant by those restrictions that is not the case the Lord Jesus has not stopped working and his spirit is at work in and through us may God speed his work and this year in our church and in the church in this nation Amen. amen let's bow our heads and pray for it Pete would you come and lead us in a response of worship Lord, we acknowledge that you are Lord over your church, it is your body, it's all ultimately your bride as well, being dressed in a perfect arraignment for your glory, being prepared for you. We come before you now, we, f- we ask forgiveness that we would ever doubt the future of your church, her beauty, her glory, her dignity that's conferred on her by you. And I want to pray, Lord, that you will bring about your purposes in us and through us. And I ask, Lord, that our church will become a beacon to radiate something of the magnificence of the gospel to our city. We lament the fact, Lord, that so much of our church life has been inhibited and hindered over the course of this year. But we identify with this reality Lord that this has happened so many times through history for different kinds of reasons and the church has never had its fire put out and we pray Lord I pray I ask you Lord that you will give us such a vision of what you are going to accomplish in us and such a vision of what it means to be the church that our appetite will grow that we'll pray for it that we'll plead for it that we'll work for it that we'll give our lives to it that you'll call from us a loyalty and a commitment and a passion to be your people in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.